0: this morning, we're looking at Matthew 27, verses 1 through 10. If you would, before we open it, uh, let me pray for us and lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would take what is a very difficult text this morning, not an easy one to hear read, let alone preached, that you would convey it to our hearts and our minds and our souls in a way that we desperately need it. We believe that all Scripture is breathed out by you, and that this very Scripture is helpful for our refinement in Christ, our knowing our Savior better, and glorifying you, God, our God, more thoroughly. So would you meet us where we are at this morning? Would you take a hard text and apply it to hard hearts? Would you apply it to soft hearts? And would you conform us to the likeness of Christ Jesus, we pray. We pray this in the strong name of Christ, the only Lord and only Savior of men. And by the Spirit, amen. Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 10. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient word of God. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, And he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him, on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Think about a passage like this, and think about the man Judas, and it's difficult uh, to wrap our minds around the person of Judas, and what all was going on inside of this man, and what it was that led to such actions as we see in this text, and as we've seen in weeks before leading up to this text. Uh, Judas has to be, by every account, uh, the most tragic figure in all of human history. And I want to look at what is a very hard text this morning, and look at Judas here, and look at what is occurring in this text, and try and glean what we can from the warnings that come from his life, and From the implications that come from this text from his life. And I want to do that this morning in three ways. First, I want to look at the doctrine behind this passage, the doctrine behind this passage. Then, second, the warning in this passage. And then, third, I want to look at the call from this passage. So, first, we're going to look at the doctrine behind the passage. Then, second, look at the warning in this passage. And then, third, we will look at the call from the passage. So first, the doctrine behind this passage. And the doctrine is this. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. You see that the passage begins with Matthew saying that on this day, on this Good Friday, that the sun came up that morning, on this day that the Lord Jesus was going to be crucified. And we see on this morning that as the sun comes up on the day that Jesus is going to be crucified, that there's a gathering of these chief priests and of the elders of the people of Israel, as Matthew says, quote, taking counsel against Jesus to put Him to death. And as soon as you hear that, taking counsel to put Him to death, if you are a reader of the Old Testament Scriptures, your alarm bells should be going off in your head. You know what Matthew is doing here. He is pointing us back immediately to that famous messianic psalm, that Psalm 2. And there in Psalm 2 we read, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Matthew is taking us all the way back to Psalm 2. And he's saying, what is occurring? What we see in this passage is what was prophesied centuries and centuries before. Here are the people counseling together, these rulers counseling together to destroy the Lord's anointed. Destroy the Christ, the Son of God. Matthew is also telling us this because this is a passage that brings to our attention that all of this is happening because it is a decree of God. This is not a surprise any more than it is an accident. Jesus as King has ordained it. Our God reigns. When morning came, Matthew says, when morning came. You think about the scene that is happening here. The sun is rising on this Good Friday, and as the sun is rising, they are gathering together to condemn Jesus, and they have tried Him, and now they're going to pass Him off to the secular governing authorities to condemn Him to death. And and you think, why does Matthew begin this passage with the sun was rising? You think, well, why was the sun rising? It was rising because our God reigns. The same Lord they are condemning commands the sun, And we often forget even on the darkest of days, especially on the darkest of days, that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of His power. As Psalm 2 is pointing out, you can plot against this King. You can try to dethrone this king, but he just sits in heaven and he laughs. Why? Because he reigns. He's sovereign. And why can't they overthrow this king? Because it isn't possible. Why isn't it possible? Because he's God. They bind him, they lead him away, and now they are turning him over to Pontius Pilate, that Roman governor of the area, so that he can be condemned by secular authorities and be put to death. But Matthew's trying to tell you this isn't an accident. This isn't just happenstance. This isn't a surprise. This has been decreed. He does it at the end of the passage as well. At the end of the passage, what he does is he quotes from a couple of different Old Testament prophecies. He quotes from Zechariah 11, and he quotes from Jeremiah 19, and most of it's coming from Zechariah 11, but he attributes it to Jeremiah because Jeremiah is the greater of the two prophets. But he's quoting these two prophecies to say, look, this was prophesied. Zechariah 11, it speaks about the shepherd of God being rejected for what would be the purchase price of a slave. 30 pieces of silver. It says they, they get rid of the Lord's shepherd like he's a slave for 30 pieces of silver. And that's what happens here in Matthew. And then in Zechariah, what happens to those 30 pieces of silver? They're thrown in the temple, just like they're thrown in the temple here in Matthew. He's saying this is prophesied. And then he concludes it with, right? Concludes it from Zechariah, as the Lord directed me. God decreed this. If He hadn't, this scene, let alone the world, would be absolutely unbearable. The soldiers, the Pharisees, the scribes, these chief priests, these elders, we could even say Judas, are doing as our sovereign God decreed that they would do. Now, let's wrestle with the doctrine behind this a little bit, because that's a little hard to hear. Let's wrestle with this as we think about Judas. It's not hard to recognize that Judas commits sin in this act of betrayal. We know that. You don't have to be a scholar, a biblical scholar to identify that. And yet, we also know that God commands us not to commit sin. And then you take it to another degree and you say, and yet, we must also say that God permitted Judas to commit this sin. That is, that God did not compel Judas. He didn't force Judas. It wasn't an exercise of where God is... is causing him to do this in a forced kind of mechanistic way, but rather Judas is doing this of his own free will, but God ordained it. I love how the Westminster Confession of Faith speaks about this. It says that God does not do violence to the creature's will. He doesn't do violence to the will of the creature, the creature's will. What what does that mean? What well, it means this, is that God created us as beings. He created us as personal beings with personal wills. I have a will, you have a will. He didn't create us as robots. He didn't create us as machines. And so He treats us as He created us, as human beings with wills. So that means that He does not force us to do anything. Because then he would be treating us like robots or like machines. No, he treats us as beings with wills. We are always exercising our wills. If he took our wills away from us, then he would be doing violence to the creature. Judas was not forced to do anything. Judas knew that betraying Christ, an innocent man, as he says, he knows that he was committing sin. So this was Judas's sin, an act of his free will, and yet it was decreed by God. God permitted it. But it's not as if he just permitted it, as if it was just by bare permission, that it was just going to be a possibility that Judas could do this. No, that is why Matthew is quoting Scripture after Scripture of the Old Testament, prophecy after prophecy, saying, look, this has been decreed, and so it's being fulfilled. No, what God decrees comes to pass. That is Matthew's point. God willed this, and so we have to maintain both. We have man exercising his free will, and we have God's sovereignty. We have to maintain both of these truths. How does that work? How do we put this together? Well, an illustration that has often been used is in history is that it is like a man who has been put into a room, and the door of that room is locked. And it could be that that man, it is certain that you think about that man, you think, well, he, he can't get out of that room because the door is locked. However, he may not want to get out of that room. It's true that he can't get out, but it's also true that he doesn't desire to get out. There is a certainty that he will remain within, but it's also not against his will that he remains within. Why? Because he desires to remain within. It was certain that Judas would betray Jesus the Christ, but it was also his desire and the exercise of his will that he would betray Jesus the Christ. Both are true. It's decreed by a sovereign God, and Judas is exercising the freedom of his own will, and he desires this. But that causes a question, doesn't it? Why why would God decree something like this? Why would he permit it? A reformed theologian Lorraine Bettner said this, he said, the motive which God has in permitting it and the motive which man has in committing it are radically different. That is, God permits it, he even ordains it, but he does so always for a good end, whereas Judas didn't. As has been said, to a certain extent, we can say that the reason for the permission of sin is that where sin abounded, grace did abound that much more. And such deep, unfathomable grace could not have been shown if sin had been excluded. St. Augustine said it this way, he said, He does not permit unwillingly, but willingly. Nor as the God of goodness would He permit a thing to be done evilly, unless as the God of omnipotence, that is all power, He could work good even out of the evil done. God desires this to be done, but He does so because it works for a greater good. Judas desires this to be done because He is aimed at evil. They both will it. Even in the midst of the darkest moments in human history, God is working according to his goodness and light. Our God reigns. As John Calvin said, this is our God, the God who brought light out of darkness. Therefore, if he pleases, he can bring salvation out of hell itself. Our God is sovereign. He's either sovereign or he's not. And if He is not, we are in more trouble than we can possibly imagine. But He is. He is. Even this work of the Romans and the chief priests and the elders and even Judas, we could even go a step further and say even the work of Satan that we see here in the arrest of Jesus and in the trials of Jesus and ultimately what we shall see in the weeks ahead, the crucifixion of Jesus is decreed by our God who reigns. Calvin will go so far as to ask this. He will say, what is Satan's work? And he'll have this bold answer. In a certain sense, the work of Satan is the work of God. How can he say that? Because as Martin Luther once famously said, the devil is God's devil. He's God's devil. He holds Satan in obedience to his providence, and he can turn Satan wherever he wills. He can and does use all All of Satan's uh, desire to dethrone him, to cast him off of the throne. All of his attempts. God uses all of them for the accomplishment of his own divine and eternal purposes. You can't unseat this king. This is why the psalmist says he just sits enthroned above and he laughs. You can't unseat him because he is sovereign. He's God. He can't be kicked off this throne. This doctrine that our God reigns, it, I think, is, at least in my mind, it is the most comforting of truths under the sun, especially when you're in dark times. Especially when you're in dark times. sovereign and whatever it is that's occurring in my world and in my life and in the lives of those around me this somehow I don't always understand this but somehow it is working for his glory and for my greater good and the good of those around me because he's sovereign because he reigns second let us see the warning in this passage, the warning in this passage. Conviction is not repentance. That's the warning. Conviction is not repentance. We have this concluding account of Judas's life here. It only occurs here in the Gospel of Matthew. It doesn't occur in the rest of the Gospels, and then it occurs in Acts 1. And we see that Judas is convicted when he hears the judgment that is rendered upon Christ. Matthew says in verse 3, quote, he changed his mind when he heard it. He changed his mind. Now that's a statement. And you hear that statement and automatically if we didn't know the rest of the story, we would just be rejoicing. Judas, the great betrayer, he has changed his mind. Hallelujah. Remember that the religious leaders had paid him 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. And now that he has changed his mind upon hearing the condemnation of Jesus, he takes those same 30 pieces of silver and he's going to return them to these chief priests and to these elders. And so he approaches them. And as he approaches them under this conviction, he doesn't just have this conviction. He takes it a step further and he confesses. That's what he does in verse 4. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And we rejoice even more. Not only is this man convicted, but he is now confessing his sin. It's also true that the chief priests and the elders, there is clearly some kind of conviction on their part. They weave and confess to some degree of their own sins as they refuse to take the money which they had given him because they say, well, now it's blood money when they had paid him for this very reason. So there's some conviction where they notice that, look, we've committed sin, this is blood money. We're not taking that money and returning it back to the treasury where we took it from in the first place to pay you to do this. There's conviction and there's confession happening all over the place. I think about the scene, and I wonder if Judas was returning to these chief priests, and I wonder if he is returning to these elders because they were spiritual leaders, and he's looking for some kind of spiritual direction as he is under conviction. But if that's what he's looking for, he doesn't get it. It's just coldness is their response. He confesses and they say, what is that to us? They don't minister to this convicted man confessing his sins because it would mean publicly confessing their conviction of sin. And they will have none of that. Judas' response to their coldness is to throw down the silver pieces in the temple, and he goes off on his way. What seemed like an absolutely hopeful scene here is a man under conviction. Here is a man confessing his sin, and now it will just absolutely turn ghastly. Stop here, though, and think about this. I'm I'm always thankful as a pastor, I'm thankful as a husband, I'm thankful as a father, I'm thankful as a friend, I'm thankful as an acquaintance. I'm thankful for myself when I hear myself wrestling with conviction of sin. And I'm even more encouraged when I hear confession of sin. It's a wonderful mercy of God. Wonderful mercy that He has brought conviction in this part of my life and that I recognize that there is sin here. And what a wonderful mercy of God that he even takes me a step further and now I'm confessing this sin. But that is insufficient, as we see with Judas. Judas doesn't go where he should have from there, conviction and confessing. He's at a, a fork in the road when we're convicted of sin, we're always at a fork in the road. We have to choose one path or another. I love uh, driving south of here when you get close to I-94 and you start seeing all of those road signs and they will always have on there, they'll have Chicago and Detroit, Chicago and Detroit, Chicago and Detroit, as if these two things are equal in some way. And you got to choose, am I going to Detroit or am I going to Chicago. And look, one way is a land of blessing. There is like better historical sports teams, there is better pizza, and it sits on a better lake. And then there's the other. But you're at a fork, you got to decide. There's a fork in the road here. Judas was convicted, and he even confesses, but my friend's conviction is not repentance. It's not repentance. Ah, that he would have chosen that path of faith and repentance. It was a choice that was before him. Conviction, confession. Now, what do I do with it? Do I walk down this path of faith and repentance? Or do I stay in this sin? Do I keep abiding in this sin? Or do I actually turn to Christ? Do I... Turn to him in faith and repentance. That's, that's the fork in the road. And he chooses the wrong path. When conviction comes, you can continue in that or turn from it. There are only two options. Conviction, though, is not repentance. It can lead to repentance. And you can't have repentance without conviction, but you can have conviction without repentance. In Judas's example, A... And it's the path to destruction. As we said last week, there is quite a difference between Peter and Judas. Peter will weep over his sin. Judas will not. But it isn't the tears or the lack of tears that leads to their different ends. They are both convicted. Neither is it that Peter felt more strongly the conviction for his sin than Judas felt for his Judas will return back to these power brokers and will even return his money he has deep conviction of his sin. Neither was it the fact that Peter's confession was more sincere than Judas's confession. He truly believed as he said that he had sinned against an innocent man. This is a full-throated confession. The difference is that Peter turned to Christ, but Judas didn't. I don't know. I mean, was this a habit in Judas's life where he was under conviction and he just kept pushing it down? I think that's a strong possibility. We know that he was a man that was stealing from the money bag of the disciples. He was a thief. And did he just keep pushing that down? That Silent, hidden sin, thinking that somehow he could suppress that conviction. Listen, friends, whenever there is a secret sin that you and I just keep pressing down and we push it down, it will always erupt in some kind of outward, notorious sin. That's a guarantee. Judas could have just confessed and repented, and turned to Christ in faith, but he didn't. And like the psalmist, he talks about his bones, as it were, as this conviction is upon him. It's like the psalmist says that, and we all have sensed this at one time or another, where you're under conviction of sin, and it feels like, as the psalmist says, that your bones are just wasting away within you. It just feels like you're melting from the inside. And Judas, under the weight of the guilt of the sin of having betrayed his Lord and his master and the king of the universe, he is under this incredible guilt, this weight of sin. It is a burden beyond burden upon him. But oh, that he had just understood that this one that he had sinned against, this one that he had betrayed... That all of that sin and that betrayal was leading him to the cross where he would die for sinners. And that all that Judas needed to do was turn to him. Just turn to him in repentance and faith. But he didn't. And He goes out and he hangs himself, Matthew says tragically goes out and hangs himself. And Matthew is trying to press home to you and I. This is the path of destruction. This is what it leads to when you don't walk in repentance and faith. Judas hangs himself in the midst of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. His dead body would have hanged there For quite a while because no Jew would have gone up to that body and taken that body down because it was in the midst of a feast and that would have made them unclean and they wouldn't have been able to take part in the feast. And so that makes sense how we can reconcile Acts 1 where it says that Judas went out and he fell down. And as he fell down, his body burst upon the ground and all of his intestines scattered all over the ground. Well, he is hanging from this tree, as church history will tell us, and whether it's the rope broke or as church history talks about the branch broken, his body has been decomposing there for hours under the hot sun. And when his body then falls, as Acts 1 talks about, then his body bursts and his intestines go all over the ground. And that blood-stained ground... Is the ground that then is purchased as bought with the blood money that Judas was paid by the chief priests and the elders so that there might be a burying place for strangers. There's a call to us from this passage and that's our third point. And the call from this passage is this. Be sure that you have a changed heart. Be sure that you have a changed heart. Judas really wasn't a disciple, was he? he? He walked with all of them. He talked with all of them. He really wasn't a disciple though. R.C. Sproul defined a disciple as this once. He says, they are those who have committed in their hearts and minds to follow the thinking and conduct of their master forever. He wasn't a man. That was following Christ forever. He was not a man that was convinced in his mind to follow Christ. He was not a man that was convinced in his heart to follow Christ forever. He was not a man of changed heart. And yet you think of all that Judas heard and what Judas saw. He heard the woes in Matthew chapter 23 like this, Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. There are eight of these woes. And we would say, well, did, Jesus, uh, did Judas hear them? Yes, he heard all of them, but not with his heart. Did Judas follow Christ? If you were watching, you would say, yes, Judas followed Christ. Look, there he is. There's Peter on his right and there's Andrew on his left. And look, he's turning over his shoulder and he's laughing with Thomas who is following behind him. And there are only two steps behind John, that beloved apostle. And look, John's only a couple of steps behind Christ. Yes, he's following Christ. If you were looking up on the scene, you would say he followed Christ but not with his heart. In Matthew 10, you would have watched as Judas was sent out with the other 11 to preach the kingdom of heaven and to heal the sick and to raise the dead and to cleanse lepers and cast out demons. Did he not preach for the sake of the kingdom? Did He not heal the lame and the sick? Did He not raise the dead? Did He not even cast out demons in the name of Jesus? And you would look at all of that and you would say, yes, He absolutely did. We saw Him. He was a great minister for the cause of Christ, but not with His heart. Did he not sit at the table with the Lord? Did he not enjoy fellowship with Christ? If you were watching just the night before as they're celebrating the Passover, would he not have been there? Would he have not seen Jesus take that bread? Yes, he was at the table when Jesus took the bread. Did he not enjoy fellowship in the midst with them and with Christ? And we would say yes, but not with his heart. This is a man who by all appearances was engaged in every way with the ministry and the mission of Christ, but he wasn't engaged with in the one way that eternally matters, with his heart. It's the heart of man that matters. Turning to the Lord in faith and repentance. It's the heart in man that matters. It's interesting when you look through the Scriptures and you think about all of the great enemies of God and of God's people, that it's often speaking about their hearts. Right? Pharaoh is the great enemy of God's people in Israel. And what does it say? He would, not let Egypt, he would not let the Israelites go out of Egypt. Why? Because of the hardness of heart. Sihon, that king of Og, who will be recounted over and over throughout the scriptures because he was such an enemy to the Jews, he wouldn't allow them to cross through his land. What does it say about Sihon King of Od? It would say that he had a heart that was hard, that was calcified, that was obstinate. Jehu, that great king of Israel that God will raise up to wipe out all of the false worship in Israel. He will be a great minister for the sake of God, and yet it will say that God forsakes him. Why? Because he did not worship the Lord with all of his heart. Christianity is a religion of the heart. Judas did everything outwardly. If you'd watched him, you would say, oh, he is a model disciple. Look at how he does these things outwardly. But he did not have a changed heart. It's often been said, the longest distance is the six inches from your head to your heart. Think about everything that Judas knew, everything that he knew. It just didn't traverse this distance, that what you know here grips here. It makes all the difference. As Samuel said, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Dear friends, beware of formalism. Beware of formalism. Listen, I know, we live in a sappy, sentimental, emotional age, and you start hearing about the heart, and you think, let's leave that for the Hallmark Channel and Oprah, not Sunday morning, but this is what the Scriptures teach. It's a matter of the heart. Don't you quickly shrug it off because they've made it sappy in our culture. It is such a temptation for you and I, we are here week in and week out, It's especially a temptation for me to be a formalist, to be a professional preacher, to be a professional pastor, a professional Christian. I get paid for this. No, it's to be a matter of the heart. And you are not to be a professional worshiper it's so easy you come in here week in and week out and you sing the songs without thought of the words pray the prayers are just kind of oh they're cold and dead and oh i'm looking for the more lively part of the service the word goes out you may have sat under it for days and weeks and months and years some of you for decades and it does nothing here but you come week in and week out Check the box. I'm good to go. Don't be a formalist. It means nothing to our God. Old King James says this of Psalm 23:7 For as he thinketh in his heart, so he is. So goes the heart, so goes the man. As Paul said to Timothy, there are those in the last days who will have the appearance of godliness but will deny its power. We either give our hearts to God or we have given Him nothing. Nothing. I often think of Isaiah 1. It goes through my mind in times like this. Isaiah speaks about this. He talks about God speaking to the nation and that He says to the nation that He he doesn't want their sacrifices anymore. He doesn't want their incense anymore. He doesn't want their burnt offerings anymore. He says, they are an abomination to me. He says, even the Sabbath day, I don't even want your Sabbaths anymore. He says, they become a stench to my nostrils. Your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. And then that most scary of all statements he says to the nation, he says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. And every one of our hearts should just sink. We say, but God, you commanded these sacrifices. You commanded these burnt offerings. You commanded the observance of the Sabbath day. And he says, I am tired of them. I don't want them anymore but you commanded them yes I don't want them anymore why because you have become mere formalists he says to them he says you have your hands are full of blood they mock this god who reigns above by thinking that going through the motions and not giving him their hearts that they somehow will please him and you're making a mockery of me. Their hearts are far from Him. You know, Isaiah 1 would be the most discouraging of discouraging texts if it didn't continue. You know, immediately after saying that, where God says that He will no longer hear their prayers, that in the very next verse, Are the verses that I quoted to you in the Assurance of Pardoning Grace this morning? The very next verses. He says this, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. Learn." to do good. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Wash yourselves. Be clean. Remove the evil of your deeds. And how, how do we do that, O Lord? Well, you turn to my beloved Son, the King of all, the Savior of the world in faith and repentance. It's that easy. It's that easy. It's just turning to Him in faith and repentance. And He says, your sins, though scarlet red, become like white snow. That easy. Jonathan Edwards once said this. He said, The greatest and vilest, most blind, dead, hard-hearted sinner living is a subject capable of saving light and grace. Ah, that Judas had understood this. Judas, your betrayal is leading to this Christ, the very Son of God, dying on a tree for sinners. His mercy is always more. Always more. And it's yours. Just turn to Him in faith and repentance. Some of you think, well, I <clears throat> my sin is so great. It's too much to turn in faith and repentance now. But you see, our God reigns. That's where it takes us back to the beginning of this passage. Our God reigns. If you think that your sin is too great for His mercy, then you actually think your sin is greater than His mercy. That means that you think your filthiness is greater than the righteousness of Christ. That means that in essence, you think that your sin is God. That it somehow has sovereign power over God, that it is greater than God, that your sin is God. Your sin is not God. God is God. And His mercy is always greater. So you just turn to Him in faith and repentance, and it's yours. Some of you dear Christians in this room, you've been wrestling with sin. You've been pushing it down. You might even be under conviction. You may have even confessed it, but you feel like, ah, this is something I just want to live with. I I can't turn this corner. And you think your sin is greater than His mercy. His mercy is greater. So you turn to Him in repentance and faith his mercy is greater. He is either sovereign or he isn't. If he isn't, we are absolutely lost. But he is. And a sovereign God has a mercy that knows no height, that knows no depth, that knows no length, that knows no breadth. His mercy is always more. Ah, to have a changed heart. And to continue to live in that changed heart daily, faith and repentance. Ah, it's not going to be perfect. His mercy is more. Ah, I sinned again. His mercy is more. Turn in faith and repentance. Ah, I messed up again. Faith and repentance. His mercy is more. Sovereign God, dispense that mercy to you. If you are His, nothing can stand in the way. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful that truly all things are decreed by you and the Son and the Spirit are one triune God. There is nothing outside your purview that there is nothing outside of your ordination, and what great hope that gives to us. we're thankful that in the midst of our folly and giving in by our wills to the sins of this world and the sins of the flesh and the temptations of our adversary, we are thankful that you, a sovereign God, dispenses a sovereign, efficacious, abounding mercy to your people. May we walk in faith and repentance. May we be people of wholehearted devotion to you. And where we find ourselves lacking, returning once again in faith and repentance, knowing that your mercy ever stands ready, and that though our sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Truly, there is no sovereign like you. There is no great God like you, and we give you praise. In Christ's holy name, amen.